Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. If I were Jonathan Farrow right now, I would say that the mood music around U.S.-China trade talks is starting to sour, uh, at least just a touch around the edges, because we are getting a sense, uh, President Trump saying that tariffs are going to stay in place until he's sure that Beijing is going to comply with any trade deal. Uh, You have China uh, rumored to be uh, really pushing back on certain aspects. Kind of interesting, given the fact that we were really expecting something concrete within the next few weeks, John. Yeah. I would totally agree with you, but I think from the Chinese side, I think their basic assumption is that the president wants a deal. And because he wants a deal so much, maybe they can push back a little bit. I think this was always going to come down to the enforcement mechanism and the battle that they were having over that. It makes no sense for the administration to completely remove tariffs on Chinese exports until the Chinese have followed through. As the president has mentioned recently, and he's right to mention it, the, pre- the Chinese have promised in the past to do many of these things, and the follow-through has been minimal. Uh, the risk this administration does not want to take is to agree to something with the Chinese to remove the tariffs and then to have very little follow-through. I think that the key issue for markets is being able to parse through the rumors and the discussions and the news articles and figure out, are we closer or further away from a deal? Henrietta Trey's uh, Aveda Partners, she's the director of economic policy, uh, really focusing on this, uh, among other things, joining us right now by phone. So Henrietta, how do you gauge how close we are to a potential deal and whether the, uh, the talks are going well or not? Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, Well, I think it's obviously tricky to gauge from the news speculation. I was just reading some D.C.-focused news that says a possible meeting in Mar-a-Lago is still potentially on for later this month, meeting next week. That seems wildly optimistic to me. Um, I think the more reliable sources are talking about late April, late June, even as the deadline. What's most instructive to me is to understand what China's strategy has been for the last year and a half of the Trump administration. And overarchingly, it's basically just delay. And if you come at China understanding that they view the 2018 elections as a referendum against President Trump, they saw the first two government shutdowns in the first two months of this year as a further weakening of the president's hand and see how much he struggled to pass the USMCA, his apparently signature achievement on NAFTA through Congress, which hasn't even begun yet. And you get the sense that not just China, but also Japan and the European Union are basically stalling for time. Well, um, so when I speak with uh, folks around the industry circles, that's what they tell me as well. The interesting thing is, does President Trump want a delay as well at this point, given the fact that there is pushback within his own party about exactly what a deal should look like and the fact that markets uh, really don't want the tariffs and rally on any sign uh, that there will not be uh, such big levies put on Chinese goods? Well, I think it's a combination of what investors want, which is get these tariffs off now, versus what folks in D.C. want. Speaking with both Republicans and Democrats, they're very comfortable with the existing tariffs. And frankly, they don't much care if tariff rates rise to 25 percent. It's a huge difference between the political sphere and the actual state of the economy on the ground, um, where folks in D.C., including the Republican Party, would rank the deals with China as, at best, third on their list of trade problems. 
problems. Number well, one being the USMCA, number two being the threatened auto tariffs, and then three being China. So Trump really is getting it from both sides. Well, Henrietta, actually, I wanted to dig a little further with you. Would it be a mistake for the Chinese to think that they can wait this out because there is actually some bipartisan support for the approach this administration has taken? Um, I, I think that for China to wait this out is assuming that the president cannot put tariffs on closer to the 2020 election. That is an assumption that is widespread in D.C. circles, including amongst folks who've been slapped with these tariffs who are saying, hey, don't increase it or don't put new tariffs on in the case of the auto industry. And that is an assumption that is a personal choice you have no basis in fact for. Uh, the president has never turned down the opportunity to put tariffs on at any point in his administration. Yep. And assuming that getting into, what, March of 2020, he's going to get cold feet because the election's coming up? I don't, I don't know that that's a really safe assumption because the voting population in the U.S. doesn't seem to mind the trade wars all that well, much. And- hold on a second. I want to push back a little bit because when you do get signs that tariffs are going to be slapped on uh, goods from either China or Europe, U.S. equities fall. And President Trump has been highly reactive to U.S. equity markets. Is that not enough to sort of hang your hat on? I, I don't think it's the same as talking about voters. Um, I would I would encourage folks to to focus on the farming population. Here's an anecdote that I thought was really interesting. The Trump administration sort of mocked or even laughed at foreign nations when they put tariffs on the U.S. agriculture sector in order to retaliate for the tariffs we put on steel and aluminum. And the response in the White House was basically, go ahead on. If you want to put tariffs on the farmers, you do that. They're never going to vote for a Democrat. They're always going to vote with us. So you're hurting people who we don't have any risk of losing. And that's different than the average investor on the street. So the Separating equity holders from the average voter is uh, a different political dynamic. It's a really good point, Henrietta, and one well made. Do you have a base case at the moment for what happens next? Yeah, my base case is that the existing tariffs stay on for at least the first half of 2019. Um, Y'all talked about at the beginning the need for um, enforcement and China actually delivering proof that they were changing their stripes. So um, now that we're already in practically April, I feel pretty pretty comfortable saying that the tariffs are going to be on for a few more months as USTR Lighthizer and Trump gauge whether or not China's actually made any progress on forced tech or IP theft or market access um, beyond any signing ceremony that may or may not occur at Mar-a-Lago or elsewhere in the next couple of months. Um, so I think the existing tariffs stay on. That's contrary to the street's expectation, which was expecting them to come off on March 1, if not Jan 1. Um, and that on a go-forward basis, we're going to be here for a while. There's going to be one month, three month, six month reviews, as USCR Lighthizer has laid out. And we're going to be in this U.S.-China trade dynamic for quite some time still. Henrietta, I'm wondering so far, I know it's early days, but do we have a sense of whether uh, the U.S. or China is suffering more from the tariffs that have been implemented so far economically? Uh, I think there's headwinds across the board. Um, One of the things that I think the president has really had on his side is that the business community who's impacted by the tariffs are also extraordinarily um, supportive of President Trump. I met with the National Association of Manufacturers, for instance, which represents all the big manufacturers in the U.S., and they have something like a 92% approval rating for President Trump. So while the U.S. economy is being hit by these tariffs, as is China's, the amount of tariffs we have 
have on them is more than double the amount of tariffs they have on us. Um, but it really is constructive to see, you know, on earnings calls or in conversations with the Business Roundtable or the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, they're not supportive of tariffs. They're not supportive of necessarily the go-alone trade, trade strategy that the president's employed. But they do like him better than they like the alternative. And as a result, that's really tempered any of the um, opposition or the public headlines that would uh, otherwise lambast, say, a Democratic president who is doing the same thing. So I think that headwind, that political support domestically from the business community, whether it's the auto dealers who have 95 percent of support for the president yeah. um, or the manufacturers who, again, are at 92 percent support, really, really helps him just from a headline perspective. And that obviously trickles down to the investment community and also the average voter. What about in China? Is President Xi Jinping uh, gaining support based on how he's handling this uh, tariff situation in addition to adding stimulus to the economy uh, to get things going again? I think in the beginning, there was a lot of um, negative headlines about President Xi hoping that he, or rather looking back and sort of playing Monday night quarterback and basically saying, you could have stopped this at the beginning and you dramatically underestimated how serious President Trump was about putting these tariffs on. But now that we're here a year later, roughly, and the tariffs are fair game and the U.S. and China are in a pretty significant battle, we've seen a tightening of support around President Xi. And it's obviously difficult to tell at some points, but the President Xi seems to be uh, cracking down where he needs to and corralling support from the business community domestically where he needs to um, and expanding the Communist Party, which indicates uh, significant um, consolidation of power from his end. And as you mentioned, he's passed numerous different tax cuts, which they can do far more quickly than the U.S. can. We won't be passing any more tax cuts to offset the tax, uh, the tariff uh, wars. But China, they've passed, yeah. what, two individual tax cuts and making autos cheaper, etc. Um, so they can, they can act more quickly than we can. Henrietta, great to catch up with you. As always, really insightful stuff. Henrietta Trace there, Director of Economic Policy for Veda Partners. There does seem to be a tipping point where the Fed is fully capitulating on rate hikes, possibly for this cycle, with the next move likely being a cut. Uh, and, and this not affecting risk assets in the same way that you would expect. We're not in Goldilocks anymore. This is not necessarily a blanket positive uh, for uh, risk markets. Joining us to talk about that, Ira Jersey, Bloomberg Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist, uh, and of course, Gina Smilek of our Bloomberg Economics team on Bloomberg News. Uh, Gina, let's start with you. What did we learn yesterday uh, that was the most salient point that is sending yields so much lower at this point? You know, I think it's a good question what specifically the yields are, are reacting to, but I think the two key takeaways we learned, I think it's hard to hard to just pick one. The one is that the Fed is very cautious around inflation. They are actively worried that they are not going to hit their 2% target on a sustained basis, and that is resulting in real patience on rates. The second one is that the balance sheet runoff, we got a lot more detail on that than I think some people were even expecting, including, you know, when they start moving MBS into treasuries the fact that they're going to be trying to be neutral to the market. A lot of people are expecting that. That was an interesting detail coming out yesterday. What was your take, Ira? 
Yeah, I, I agree. I think that the market is taking the quantitative tightening. I think it's not so much the uh, the fact that the Fed's on hold. I mean, the market was already pricing that the Fed was going to be on hold and even cutting in 2020 prior to the meeting. So I think it's the end of quantitative tightening, and it's the fact that they're going to be buying throughout the curve that caused this uh, th- this bit of a rally. And, you know, it seems massive. Like, this this rally seemed massive. It's been nine basis points. Well, massive relative the to, to the dullness and boring and exactly. lack of volatility but we've when, had for when the you last look few at, months. When you look at it going back to, like, 2018, you know, we had 24 days last year that were like this. So it's not that unusual. It's just in the last three months in our conscious minds, we got used to, you know, one and two basis point moves in the 10-year treasury. Yeah. You get a seven and, oh, my God, it's well, but, it's massive. It's not but, massive. It's well, but just I, bigger I, than usual. I want to go into something that you were just saying, which is uh, the market had already been pricing in a cut. The Fed didn't necessarily shift the dynamic that much. I want to push back on that because actually what you saw is that the chances of a rate cut as priced by the market increased substantially after the Fed's meeting, which suggests to me that even though the Fed is taking an incredibly patient approach, people do not think the Fed is going to avoid the next downturn or prolong this credit cycle. Well, I think one of the things that happened is prior to the meeting, the the market was pricing for a small chance of some hikes by 2020 and then um, a small chance of several cuts, right? So, uh, and basically what we did now was we got rid of all those hikes. So because we got rid of all those hikes, we're now only pricing for unchanged or ease, whereas it's not as, uh, you know, quite as a normal distribution of, of So you're going rates. technical. You're basically saying you can't really make these wide sweeping things. It's a technicality. Well, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you only look at one number, you, you know, that that's what it is. But but ultimately, there's a there's a distribution of potential outcomes that that's being priced. So, Gina, from your perspective, what was uh, sort of the biggest factor giving pause to the Fed? You said inflation. Uh, is there something else that they were concerned about? Because in the past, they've talked about global headwinds. They've talked about trade concerns. They've talked about uh, you know, other issues. Anything that stands out? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. They kind of were pessimistic across all of those issues. I, I mean, I was in the lockup and I was I always highlight the things that have changed from the previous statement. The whole first paragraph was basically a highlight this time because they, they downgraded everything. But the thing that was the real takeaway is just how worried they are about inflation. You know, they brought it up over and over again in this press conference with Jay Powell like this is a real concern and I think a concern that markets didn't appreciate as fully prior to yesterday. I think that it seemed to me like that was part of the reason people took such a more dovish view on the Fed. So Gina, the data hasn't changed radically over the last three months. Has the Federal Reserve reaction function shifted radically and in what way do you think it has? I think they used to be true believers in the Phillips curve, even though they for a long time have been saying that that relationship is more tenuous. That's the relationship between unemployment and inflation. And I think that they are no longer true believers in that Phillips curve. They talked, they've been talking a lot about the fact that as wages go up, that isn't necessarily passing through to prices. And they repeated that yesterday. So I'm just wondering, Ira, from your perspective, I know you had been talking before this meeting, before this meeting uh, that the likelihood of a rate hike was bigger than some people were expecting. What do you think it would take at this point to get the Fed to hike rates? Well, in 2019, I think, you know, it's it would take quite a lot. Right? It would take a turn in data and a turn now, right, which is very unlikely. When you look at the first quarter data, first quarter is going to be very weak. If we see a turn in the data in the second quarter, then maybe we start to price hikes in 2020, right, but not hikes now. And it, that would still have to be very, uh, very meaningful. So when you think about the Fed's reaction function now, it, it ha- I don't think it's shifted a lot. I think it's still that you need trending, inflation to be trending higher and be above their target 
for them to start hiking again. And then on the on the other side, you need to see significant downside volatility in order for them to cut rates. Um, and when I say volatility, I mean in risk asset markets. So you need to see credit spreads going wider, equities going down. Well, let's just stress test that reaction function a little bit. If that's the case, why did they hike in December? Well, I think they hiked in December for two reasons. I think one, one, the, the mistake that they made in December was that it wasn't a dovish enough hike. They, you know, they could have hiked and said, "Hey, we're done for 2019." Like, had they made the statement they made today, but they hiked, that would have felt which would much make different. no sense, Ira. But they hiked, I think, in part because the the president forced them to. You know, the, they had to exert their independence. They wanted to hike. They they had it in there. And, oh come on, you really think so? Oh, I think that there were really there were people in the hallway before they went into the meeting, and you know, Gina Smilek, come on. <laughs> Yeah, Why come on, come, come on. on. Push back yeah, on this Yeah, one. I don't think that's right. <laughs> I mean, I, so I cover these guys all the time, and I just, I feel like they really take this idea of independence very seriously. I could see how you could take... Look a, at this diplo- of diplomacy. It's fantastic. Oh, you just told me Keep I'm going. wrong. I just, know, I've been wrong before. I'm a strategist. I mean, come I on, throw down. I can see how you take the view that they would be pushed into hike by wanting to prove that they're independent, but I really think that the reason they were pushed into hike is that they had signaled a hike so clearly for such a long time they saw financial conditions tightening, but they didn't know for sure that th- that was going to be sustained. And so it wasn't enough to push them off course early enough. And by the time it was clear that it was going to be sustained, it was too late in the day to walk markets back. I think that's why they hiked in December. Well, the markets had already walked back, right? That's that's why this that's why it was. I, I think one of the other things we have to consider about what you know the Fed being on hold for all of this year is one of the policy mistakes that the Feds generally made was um, yield curves being uh, exceptionally flat for. Um, uh, the, the yield curve getting flat, which which basically is signaling equilibrium, that the market is at equilibrium, that the economy is at equilibrium, that it's at a sustainable pace. And in the past, what's often happened is the Fed has hiked after the curve was already flat, and that's inverted the curve, and that yeah. basically pushed against it, and that's why the how the Fed killed um, killed a lot of expansions. So this time, you know, this is kind of an experiment where the Fed's now saying, hey, if we are on hold now because curves are very flat and because the market's basically signaling we're at equilibrium, maybe we can uh, we can continue uh, this expansion going forward if we don't hike anymore. Ira, great to catch up with you. Ira Jersey there alongside Gina Smilek, Bloomberg's very own and one of our finest Fed reporters. And of course, Ira joining us from Bloomberg Intelligence, our chief U.S. interest rate strategist. of is the U.S. in a sweet spot here of slow growth, but growth and uh, solidifying profitability at companies, or are we shifting toward the end and the rollover of the credit cycle? Lindsay Piegza, Stiefel, chief economist, joining us now. Lindsay, can you weigh in on that? I mean, basically, are we looking at something material that has shifted in the U.S. economy to a more bearish viewpoint? Good morning. Well, I think the Fed certainly thinks they've reached neutral, or at least they're near the neutral level, which for the Fed, as we know, is pretty good. Historically, the Fed continues to tighten until the evidence in the data is so clear that the economy has weakened that at that point, the economy essentially has fallen off a cliff, and then the Fed is is, is scrambling to cut rates in the near term. So this time, at least the Powell-led Fed seems to acknowledge some of that early weakness bubbling underneath the surface. So it's very likely that we continue to see the expansion for at least a short period longer. 
And at that point, then, as the evidence becomes more clear, the Fed will have to shift to a defensive stance. So to your, to your question, I do think the economy is shifting gears, but it's at the very early stages of shifting gears. And we do have to give the Fed a lot of uh, accolades for recognizing that early sign of beginning to slow the pace of expansion. Okay, so Lindsay, uh, so it seems like you applaud what the Fed did yesterday. My question is, are markets wrong here? Uh, to not be pricing in a prolonged credit cycle, because they are not. You are seeing credit spreads staying where they are widening, uh, and you're seeing equity markets uh, down somewhat in the wake of this decision. This is pessimism, and frankly, should it be optimism that we're going to see a longer recovery here? Well, I think the market is correct in the fact that it's tempering their expectations for the continuation of the expansion, because at the same time the Fed is saying we're backing off and growth is still relatively steady. Remember, that's pretty much in the rearview mirror. Going forward, although it wasn't a meaningful reduction, it was a reduction in the Fed's outlook for growth and inflation. And so the Fed essentially saying, look, we see the bias to the economy to the downside. And we know that the Fed is typically a little behind in terms of forecasting a more dismal outlook in terms of growth and price pressures. But the fact that the directional momentum was acknowledged by the committee to be to the downside, the market is taking that to say, look, we're going to see slower growth, slower inflation, and if we see the the evolution of the data deteriorate even faster than the Fed has forecasted, that means we're going to see that rate cut, that first rate cut, sooner than later. So I don't think the market is wrong. I think the market is simply ahead of the Fed. So, Lindsay, at the moment, the Federal Reserve says its objective is to extend the expansion, to extend the cycle. Lindsay, do you think they can engineer a soft landing? Well, I think they're certainly going to see a longer period of growth than we would have otherwise seen had they raised rates at at the March meeting yesterday and if they had further plans to raise rates at June or or elsewhere in the first half of the year. We could have been talking about potentially negative growth in the second half of 2019. The fact that they're willing to be patient and remain on the sideline for the coming 12 months means that we're likely able to push off that recession to 2020. So I think the Fed has, at least in their mind, navigated the best case soft landing that we could have expected from policy leaders. What about inflation? Do you think that this will actually lead to higher inflation rates, or do you think that we're going to end up uh, in a sort of pseudo-Japan level, regardless of what the Fed does? No, I think at this point, the bigger concern is downside inflation, meaning a potential disinflation or a slower rate of positive price pressures. And I think the primary concern is looking at the global economy. Right now, you're talking about a significant slowdown in our developed counterparts abroad. If you look at European growth, minimal tenths of a percentage point of GDP. Italy, the latest catalyst to recession. Germany, the largest economy in the bloc really teetering on the brink of recession. So this is, this is compounding some of the concerns that we're already having in the developed world, i.e. China, at the slowest growth rate that we've seen in decades. So taken together, the global economy certainly is slowing, which is translating into a weakened demand for global goods and services, which of course affects overall demand for raw materials, commodities, and this is where we start to see that deflationary pressure contagion uh, come into the U.S. economy. And this is what the Fed is concerned about, that that downward pressure from weak conditions overseas. Remember, we're only focused on the U.S. economy. They are U.S. policymakers. But 
we are a global economy and we cannot ignore those pressures coming into us from abroad. Hey, Lindsay, great to catch up with you to get your thoughts on the Federal Reserve and the economic data out this morning here in the United States. Lindsay Pieggs are there, Chief Economist for Stiefel. Our focus is on Brussels. Theresa May just arriving to speak with the European Council to argue for their approval uh, for a one-off three-month delay to Brexit. The question is, uh, will this be a positive for the United Kingdom? We do see sterling selling off versus the dollar, even though the dollar has been weakening. And of course, uh, for more on this, we are so lucky to have Francine Lacroix of Bloomberg Television uh, joining us. She is in Brussels. Uh, Francine, thank you so much for being here. What is the mood music? Do you think that the European Council will sign off on Prime Minister Theresa May's plan? Uh, hi, Lisa. Yes. I, so where I am actually physically standing is in the European Council building where we're seeing basically the arrivals of all the heads of state. I do think they will probably give her something, but we need to understand exactly what Theresa May has asked for and I think what the EU are willing to give her. So if we take it back a bit, um, Lisa, basically Theresa May, as you said, wants an extension for June 30th. We understand from the EU side that they would give an extension, possibly not to June 30th, but maybe May 23rd, but it would be attached to something. And what they see it as is actually a technical delay. So the EU and the UK so far have, uh, you know, brought up with this withdrawal agreement. They've negotiated that for the last two years. The sticky point is Parliament in the UK. So what we think the EU will say is, yes, I give you a technical extension, a technical delay, only if Parliament, which has so far voted down the withdrawal agreement twice, will say yes to it next week. One question that I have is you've got UK opposition Labour Party leader Jeremy Corbyn also heading to Brussels, scheduled to get there later today. And I'm just wondering how this complicates May, Theresa May's bid here, uh, because he is proposing an alternative uh, Brexit plan, correct? Yes. So what he wants is basically for the UK to kind of leave the European without really leaving the European. What he wants is the UK to stay in the customs union. But if you think about it like this, so for the last two years, Theresa May and her government have been negotiating with the EU. It's very clear now that if you look at the UK, the real power is not with government. The real power is with Parliament. And, of course, Labour is part of the biggest majority that is the opposition to Theresa May. So, ideally, Theresa May would put her differences aside with Labour and try and figure out a plan that gets parliamentary support. What Jeremy Corbyn did here was, sure, get a little bit of, you know, political um, debate going. Um, Mr. Juncker, we understand, like, listen to his positions, but actually he doesn't really have the tools to negotiate anything, he needs to go back home, and that's why he needs to find an agreement with the Tories if he's willing to do so. Francine, I'm wondering about the price action that we're seeing in the sterling uh, market, because we are seeing ongoing weakness, even though it does seem like the European Council is poised to sign off on Prime Minister May's plan for a three-month delay to Brexit. What, how do you interpret the uh, weakness that we're seeing here? Yeah, so I do think there, there has been, in the last maybe couple of days or maybe week, a little bit of confusion about two what Theresa May could actually do, right? So there has been this belief, I think, in the markets that she would get an extension, which basically delays the whole thing by three months. I think what we're now talking about is getting a technical extension if the parliament approves this deal. Now, this is very different, Lisa, because it still means that 
they don't get anything if Parliament doesn't agree on it. And again, it, the withdrawal agreement actually hasn't changed, right? So this would be a technical extension just so that the UK gets ready for their laws because we don't have a blueprint for this. So let's say that tomorrow Parliament said, okay, this is a deal, we were all wrong, we really want to go and, and get behind Theresa May to push this through then you still have to translate it into law. So this is what it is. This is like a technical extension. And so everything could go wrong still, right? She, she could have to call elections. She could have to call a, a referendum. And she could still crash out, or the UK could still crash out. And I think uh, pound traders are probably just still realizing that. Are we closer to or further away from a hard Brexit than, they, than we were, say, uh, a week or two ago? I think we're closer to a hard Brexit. If you look at, uh, again, a lot of the power at this moment which is, I know, the frustration of the EU, is that they cannot figure out what the UK Parliament wants. The only thing we know that the UK Parliament doesn't want is a no-deal Brexit, is a hard Brexit. They voted against that. But the current law frame, and I know this is complicated because it's like, you know, know, the the legality of this is that if there's a no, if, if, if there isn't a deal by March 29th, which is eight days away, the UK crashes out. And so as the clock ticks, I think you, you have to assume that a no deal is not only still on the table, sure, involuntarily, but it's still on the table, but also we're getting closer to that almost every step of the way. Francine, uh, just to finish up here, I'm wondering whether your sense is that Prime Minister Theresa May has more clout, more power heading into this European Council meeting uh, in Brussels today, given the fact that she has survived again and again, despite the fact that basically opposition and everybody in Parliament has taken a hammer to her head and tried to smash her out of there, and she has just remained. Is she more powerful? Well, in the EU side, and we have been trying to figure out, it's a great question, Lisa, we've been trying to figure it out, right? I think when you speak to EU insiders, the EU position has been strong. It hasn't changed. They've been, you know, in solidarity with Ireland, who will be the most affected by the backstop. And so for their part, the EU says, well, we've negotiated this. There's there's nothing, you know, they don't really care, if, if I'm honest, who's on the other side. They negotiated. They have a withdrawal agreement, and that's the blueprint. So we need to ask ourselves whether Theresa May is more powerful at home, if she can actually focus the minds of the parliamentarians. And that, I have to say, for the moment is very, very unclear. Yeah, as is most things surrounding Brexit. Francine Lacroix, thank you so much for being with us uh, and for spending time. Francine Lacroix is Bloomberg Television anchor, Bloomberg Surveillance anchor. Uh, She is in Brussels with the European Council meeting taking place. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.